Great. So we're here with Matthew Polly. Uh, really excited to have you on today. Uh, Matthew's a, an author who's written several books on martial arts. Uh, the first one being American Shaolin, which is an awesome book about his time training Kung Fu at the Shaolin Temple. Then Tapped Out, a book that uh, explored the world of mixed martial arts. And uh, his latest book, Bruce Lee, A Life, which is an incredible new biography on, uh, well, Bruce Lee. Uh, so, Matthew, thanks a lot for joining us. Great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, so we thought maybe we could just start with uh, sort of what got you into this world of packing up your life and uh, heading, heading to Shaolin for a couple of years and, and, and from there the world of, of writing about martial arts. Um, yeah, so I think my story is a kind of archetypal martial arts story, which is when I was 12 or 13 years old, uh, I saw Enter the Dragon. Um, and kind of fell in love with Bruce Lee because he was this scrawny guy who was the total badass. Um, and that's what I wanted to be at 12 or 13 because I was a scrawny little kid who was picked on. And so I think like a lot of us who got into martial arts, it was a way to be tough. Um, and then later on, we realized that there was an entire spiritual and historical and cultural element to it. But at the very beginning, I just wanted to be somebody who could protect himself. Uh, and eventually that led me to going to the Shaolin Temple because, of course, in Enter the Dragon, Bruce Lee is a Shaolin monk who goes and fights. And so this fantasy place that supposedly was in China where you could go and learn to be a total kick-butt dude, um, that's what I wanted. And so I ended up, you know, kind of crazily when I was 20 years old um, flying off to the Shaolin Temple in Henan, China in the early 90s, uh, before China was rich and powerful, it was still sort of a poor backwards country then, and studied there for two years. And then I uh, started a career in writing in New York, and that story became my first book, and that kind of launched my martial arts writing career. Right, and I mean, you, if, I mean, I remember in American Shaolin, you kind of end up uh, having some competitive uh, kung fu kickboxing matches uh, in the book. So uh, how did that go? And how did it go sort of moving from life as a Kung Fu, a Western Kung Fu kickboxer in, in China to uh, gloving up and, and, and moving into the world of, of mixed martial arts? Yeah, so um, at the Shaolin Temple, they had three basic courses of study. One was the kind of traditional Shaolin Kung Fu, the kind of things you can see in the Hong Kong movies. Uh, and then that sticks the wushu that you can see performed at like Olympic events, which is all very high flying, lots of flips. And then they had uh, Chinese style kickboxing, which is kind of like Muay Thai. The rules are slightly different. So no knees, no elbows, but they have throws. So um, I was basically six foot three and 155 pounds. And so watching me do backflips is pretty <laughs> awkward. Um, and also traditional Kung Fu forms are very low to the ground. Um, I remember once my master, I was doing praying mantis form and he was like, you have the tallest praying mantis I've ever seen. Um, but I realized with kickboxing, you actually, you have an advantage if you're tall and skinny because of weight classes. And so I could have a great reach advantage. Uh, so I ended up doing uh, kickboxing at the Shaolin temple and fighting a tournament, a kind of international term tournament there. Um, it was pretty decent. You know, there were obviously better people in the world than me, but pretty decent kickboxer after two years of training. 
and then came home and started a writing career and didn't train very much. Uh, and wrote the book American Shaolin, was looking for a, a follow-up book. And at this point in time, the UFC was just starting to take off. This was the early 2000s. And at the time, it had a kind of rough and tumble reputation. Um, and so, you know, having knowing how martial arts and combat sports works, I thought I could write a story about what it was like. And my, I thought I would just sort of interview people, but my editor was like, no, you have to go train. <laughs> and at that point, I was, you know, mid-30s, a good 30, 40 pounds overweight. Um, and so it, in a way, it was a chance to sort of relive the youth. And it, it would be like some, you know, Michael Jordan deciding he wants to play for the Bulls again. Like, he was a pretty good player, but he's old. And so that's what it was like for me was being a kind of, you know, Randy Couture aged person without Randy's genetics, um, trying to learn mar uh, mixed martial arts, but certainly having a background in kickboxing helped a bit. Awesome. And I'm sure obviously trading at the temple, you had many amazing experiences. Is there anything that still stands out to you today? Uh, yeah, probably the thing that I will always remember most was, um, it's, it's the starts at the beginning of my book, but, uh, a master from the North, uh, uh, from Tianjin had come to the temple with a group of friends and he challenged the monks to a challenge match. And that's one of those things you only think happens in movies, but apparently it does happen in real life. And all the monks were arguing about who should fight first. And I wanted to be polite. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll fight him if you want, not really meaning it. Then they decided that would be a great idea to have me go out there as sort of cannon fodder. Um, so I could get my butt kicked, but they'd learn how his style worked. And then right. the next guy could beat him up. Um, and so I went out and I, I fought this guy in a challenge match at the Shaolin Temple and actually won. Wow. And, and so after that, I was sort of like a mascot. They were like, oh, look at the white guy. He's actually not too bad at Kung Fu. Uh, <laughs> because the Chinese all think that only they are good at Kung Fu and everybody else sucks. Right. Uh, and so uh, I was like this, I was a special little mascot of the Shaolin Temple after that and became the first American disciple there, largely wow. based on that uh, victory. So that to me is still one of the craziest moments of that experience. Yeah. That's an amazing story. <clears throat> Has the Shaolin Temple, as far as when you were there, uh, you said in the early roughly, when was it in the 90s? Yeah. I mean, has it commercialized a lot? Because I remember I watched an interview with you. You said that they would take you in as long as you paid the $1,200. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> is it still kind of com even more commercialized now with, you know, globalization, yeah. internet? Yes, it's, it's even more so. It, um, when I got there, I felt like it was kind of a, a rundown Disneyland. Um, and now it's a kind of more upscale Disneyland. Okay. So basically, um, what you see is... Um, you know, China decided it could use its cultural artifacts in order to make money. And that's sort of the universal goal the country's had since uh, openness and change, Gaiga Kaifeng. Uh, and so everything that it could, it could turn into a tourist trap, it turned into a tourist trap. Uh, on the other hand, before they did that, there was no money. And so there was like three monks living there. So in a weird way, the commercialism has helped rebuild the temple, but they live in a kind of uh, uncomfortable mix, which is you want less sort of tourist trappiness, 
on the other hand, you need a certain amount of that to keep the temple, to pay for monks. You know, monks don't make any money. Somebody has to pay for them. Um, and so it's a weird sort of combination. And I don't think they've got the mix quite right yet. But uh, the temple is better in the sense that it's more developed. But when you go there, you definitely realize you're in uh, a tourist trap. Right. So I suppose, Matthew, how do you go from, you know, you start, you, you're training at the Shaolin Temple and then you end up moving over to the world of MMA. And I suppose I'm wondering, how does one decide where they're going to train? There's so many options. There's so many different styles, so many different combat sports you have to know to get into mixed martial arts. How do you make that decision? Okay, this is where I'm going to go and get my training. Um, so... I, I had watched the early tapes of the UFC, and so I had a sense of who some of the guys were, um, and also watched some of the Pride events in Japan, which people forget, but Pride had the better fighters very early on than the UFC did. Uh, and then I asked around who was local, um, because I, I wanted to start training mostly from home, and I was living in New York City, and Henzo Gracie, has the the basement jujitsu studio and he's you know obviously one of the most famous gracies the gracies started the ufc the whole thing is based on their sort of family challenge tradition so i started with him um and his top no-gi instructor was a guy named john donaher uh, and then i talked to john about who i should train muay thai with because my idea was i would go train each of the constituent styles of mixed martial arts, which is boxing, wrestling, Muay Thai, and Jiu-Jitsu. And my background was in striking, so my weakness was grappling. So I focused mostly on Jiu-Jitsu. Um, but he recommended uh, Phil Nurse, who was uh, George St. Pierre's uh, Muay Thai instructor. I thought that was a pretty good recommendation. Um, and he was also in New York. <laughs> and so I trained in New York for a long time. And then I took some trips to try to get the cultural elements to Brazil, to Thailand, uh, even went to um, St. Petersburg, Moscow, um, to, to study a little Sambo. Uh, but my final sort of leg of the journey was to go to Las Vegas, because that's where the UFC's home is at. And that's really the heart of mixed martial arts in the United States and ended up training at Randy Couture's gym there. It sounds like a, a proper training camp. <laughs> it was. Well, the, uh, the funny thing that happened was I, I went and I told him I'd just gotten married. Uh, and I said, honey, I'm on deadline. I have to finish this book. I'm going to go to Vegas for a training camp for eight weeks. And this was literally like two weeks after I got married. And she looked at me like, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> How, how did I get married to this bum? So um, I go to the training, I go to Couture's and they hook me up with uh, Joey Varner, who was one of their coaches. Uh, and he takes me through the first class and he's like, yeah, you, eight weeks, you're not going to be ready in eight weeks. <laughs> he goes, it would be immoral of me to put you in the ring. Yeah. Um, so he basically said, yeah, it's going to take maybe four or five months at least. Uh, and so I had to make that phone call. So I had to call my fiance and said, honey, actually, it's not going to be two months. It's going to be six. <laughs> and that was a, there was just a dead silence on the phone. Yeah. And I, was I, was say, like, I, would... I was like, is this going to be the divorce? Is this the moment <laughs> she's like a no fault divorce? Um, but she stuck with me, fortunately. Good to hear. 
Um, and I actually train at Renzo Gracie in Cape Town. So I would love to hear maybe a little bit more about your experience training under John. Obviously, I watch a lot of his um, instructionals. Um, right. Obviously, a wizard of the game. And yeah, it would be great just to hear a little bit more about your experience there. Yeah, so um, John is fantastic. He's super smart. Uh, he's very funny. He's got a dark sense of humor. As you know, he has uh, some problems walking uh, yes. I think from childhood. Um, and so you see him kind of, kind of slowly move into the gym and you think, oh, who's this guy? Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you get on the mat with him and he's kind of joking and talking and you think, ah, oh, this is going to be fine. And then he twists you into knots. Um, and so it was, you know, at the very beginning, you know, I'd been pretty good kickboxer and I thought I was a pretty good martial artist. Um, and so the level of humiliation to start all over again and work out with this guy who can basically treat me like I'm a five-year-old. Like I have a five-year-old son. He fights with me and I just kind of, you know, you let him play a little bit. And then after a while you just shut him down. That's what it was like with Donner. I was like a five-year-old. He'd let me go a little bit, show me a couple moves and then shut me down. And I used to dream. I was like, one day I'm going to tap him out. And then it would be like, okay, one day I'm going to not get tapped out by him. <laughs> And I couldn't even do that. So um, uh, it was, it's remarkable. I think jujitsu is fascinating because in New York City, um, I used to joke you could tell someone's education level by which martial arts of MMA they focused on. So like the MMA guys were all the guys with like graduate degrees. Sorry, the jujitsu guys were all the guys with like graduate, the engineers, the consultants, the lawyers, software engineers. Like there was a guy who had like an Excel document with like each move and the counter. Um, And then you go to like the, uh, you know, the wrestlers went to college. Uh, The kickboxers got out of high school and the, and the, and the boxers barely got out of grade school. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of fascinating thing because you've got all these different styles and very different cultures mashed into MMA. And particularly at that point, that was like the early 2000s, people were still training specifically in one style and then trying to add things on. And there wasn't really like what we have now where it's kind of a whole MMA is its own style itself. And you can actually just go to an MMA gym. Back then, you kind of had to go to a jiu-jitsu gym and then go to Muay Thai, et cetera. So that was a bit what it was like. Great. And um, you said you were predominantly focusing on jiu-jitsu because you obviously had quite an extensive background in kickboxing and stand-up. But if I'm not mistaken, I watched your fight against uh, David Sexton, and I yeah. think it was a stand-up fight only. It didn't even go to the ground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank God. (laughs) That was a big fear as I get some American wrestler dude and just have him sit on my chest and punch me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He turned out to, I think they matched us because we were both stand up people. Okay. Um, And uh, he he had limited uh, background there. And I, I think I was a better grappler probably than he was, but I had no interest because I knew I was, I had a striking advantage. So like, as you know, with all MMA fights, you never know where it's going to end up. Um, Mm. Fortunately for me, it stayed standing because that's where my, my greatest advantage was. Um, So I did train a lot of jujitsu, but I, you know, I'm maybe a blue belt, like on a good day. Um, Whereas I'm a brown, brown, light black on a a striker. So um, I think, uh, I think that's one of the interesting things about the sport is 
because it's so diverse of what can happen. Um, you can go out one fight and win it and look good and then go out in another and have somebody and you look like a moron. Like you look right. like you've never played the sport and yeah. at that necessity to be good in such two very diverse activities, striking versus grappling and very different mentalities. That's sort of what makes MMA such a fascinating sport to watch because boxing, there's only four punches. Mm-hmm. So in the end of the day, like you're either better or you're worse, but the rankings are, there's not as much fluidity in what can happen basically. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, we all know that feeling of um, getting into uh, yeah. like Brazilian jiu-jitsu and feeling like a five-year-old child uh, getting thrown around by an adult. And uh, I certainly uh, know because I started out with uh, Muay Thai and then he's sort of like, well, fat lot of good that did. <laughs> That's right. You realize you can't, you can't, when you can't even elbow, you're like, he's got you. So you're like, I can elbow this guy. And then you realize, shit, I'm powerless. So um, I think MMA, one of the great things that the Gracies and the UFC taught the world of martial arts is every martial artist up until like 1995 thought striking was 95% of what martial arts was. There was nobody who did traditional martial arts who thought grappling or wrestling mattered. Uh, and that was maybe the hardest lesson that was learned, which is if you don't have a basic grasp of that, you're, you're and you meet somebody who does, you're going to get swamped. Like there, you have zero chance of winning unless you have at least some basic, you know, takedown defense. Yeah. And you mentioned that you went to, um, Brazil. Um, did you sort of go there just for the sort of cultural experience of learning about jujitsu or did you, did you do some training while you were there as well? Uh, how did that go? Yeah, no, I, I, um, I did, I went twice. One was just kind of a cultural trip, um, hanging out. And one, I, I went with the Henzo's, uh, camp takes people down on like five day trips, mostly so they, the teachers can go see their families and get paid to do it. (laughs) So, um, but I, so I did train down there and it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't, uh, it, it was Gracie Baja. Um, it wasn't that different, you know, the mats and the, the, you know, the equipment was the same and it was the same kind of training. And, um, but what you see, uh, the difference between Henzo and New York and in Brazil is Brazil has a lot of really poor kids who really want to be fighters. And, and Henzo Gracie in New York city is basically like, you know, doctors and lawyers. Um, it's, it wasn't a, Henzo Gracie in New York wasn't a fight gym, um, whereas in Brazil it was. And so you met guys who were like, you know, the national, like uh, Abu Dhabi champions, that kind of thing. Um, and that's, it, it was more similar to say Las Vegas, where in Vegas all the camps have actual professional fighters in them. Um, and that's, that's the difference in like New York City. New York City really isn't a fight city anymore. Um, because it's too expensive and fighters are all poor. Um, so there's no fighters who can actually live in New York City and train there because they just can't afford it when they're right. starting out. Right. Yeah. Just before we, we move on, maybe to talk about um, Bruce Lee, are you still able to train? Are you doing any jujitsu, kickboxing? 
I, I, so I trained a little bit, but one of the, uh, one of the things after I did the MMA book is I decided I wasn't going to ever spar again. <laughs> because in, in the process of uh, doing that, I got my ribs cracked, my nose oh. mashed. Um, and so it is, I, and I realized my, my brain cell count was declining anyway, and I didn't want to increase that. So um, so I go out and I hit the bags right. of my time. Actually, my son now takes Taekwondo. He's five. Awesome. And so I'm like a, 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 I'm like a football dad. Okay. <laughs> I go there and I'm like, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. <laughs> so I have transferred a lot of my martial arts anxiety onto my son, which will inevitably screw him up later in life. Um, but, uh, so I do train a bit, but not like I used to. Okay. Fair enough. All right, so you've written these two books uh, on Shaolin Kung Fu and then Mixed Martial Arts, and then you sort of uh, embark on this process of research into, you know, I guess, was it a childhood idol? I know for, for yeah. me, I, I remember the first time watching Bruce Lee on the big screen and the impression that that made uh, probably on so many uh, children of the generation and many generations. So how, how does it, uh, how do you embark on that process of, Going okay, I'm I'm doing this now. The, the the full the full story of Bruce Lee. Yeah, it was. So what was interesting was, um, you know, the same thing for me. Like somebody brought down a tape of Enter the Dragon, and we were like, "Wow, I never seen anything like that." Of course, nowadays, filmmaking has gotten good enough that you can see actors that almost look like they're real martial artists. But back in the '90s, when I watched. Um, uh, Bruce Lee, no one could do what he could do. Uh, but it's interesting, when I went to the Shaolin Temple and then uh, mixed martial arts, I kind of lost that connection with Bruce Lee. So in a weird way, it was like revisiting a childhood hero. I hadn't thought about him in a long time. And a friend of mine, I was looking for another project in the martial arts that didn't involve me getting punched in the face. Um, so I wanted something that I could actually just read books and then write something or interview people and not have to participate. Also, I was kind of getting a little bored about writing about myself. I, like, I think I'm sort of interesting, but I'm basically one and a half books interesting. <laughs> and there are people who think they're interesting for five, six, seven books. Nobody's that interesting. <laughs> so I figured I had like one good story in me and it was time to write about somebody besides me. Um, and someone suggested, why don't you do Bruce Lee? And I said, that's a terrible idea. There must be five good biographies about him. He's one of the, you know, 10 most famous people on earth. Uh, and I looked and I found there wasn't a decent proper biography. Uh, and so that actually made me mad. Like I, I felt emotionally sort of like wounded. Like why wouldn't you, he's my childhood hero. Why would the whole world just ignore writing a decent biography of him? Uh, and so I decided, okay, this, and it felt like almost a mission. Like he inspired me to go into the martial arts, which changed my life in fundamental ways. And this will be my way of honoring that gift that he gave to me by writing a proper biography of it. Awesome. And then one of the things that stood out to me is kind of, you say he came from a very like diverse lineage. Um, and you said he doesn't have a definitive tribe. And I was quite taken aback at how diverse his lineage is with his parents, his grandparents. Yeah. Maybe you could just touch on that briefly. Yeah, so that was one of the great uh, discoveries. I think one of the fun things about doing a biography of Bruce Lee is 
he's such a famous figure, but not that much is actually known about his life. And a lot of what's known or people think they know about Bruce Lee is actually wrong. Uh, and so one of the things was they thought his grandfather was German, that he was like a quarter European. Uh, but it turned out that his great grandfather was Dutch Jewish uh, and his grandmother was full British. So he's like five eighths Han Chinese and a quarter English and a like eighth Dutch Jewish. And I remember the day my wife's Jewish. And I remember the day that I, uh, I ran downstairs when I discovered this and I was like, honey, honey, Bristley's <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> she was like, how Jewish was he? I was like an eighth. And she goes, okay. Um, so, uh, I thought that was interesting because, of course, Bruce Lee's central philosophical principle, the reason why we remember him in the martial arts is he's the guy who opened up the martial arts to, to universal styles, that everybody was much more conservative, they were much more traditional, and Bruce Lee was the guy who said, you know, use what is useful, reject what is useless. And um, I thought, you know, there's a genetic connection there. Like, Somebody who grew up, who was Eurasian, who didn't fit in in China, he wasn't full Chinese, and then comes to America and he's not white, was always caught in the middle. And that's the kind of person who would have seen the usefulness of taking from different cultures because that's the way he had to live his own life. And that expanded to his martial arts. And then just to, sorry to jump in, Daniel, uh, just to take a step back, I mean, you must have spent an immense amount of time and effort, you know, doing all this research about him, roughly how long did you spend before you even start embarking on, on writing the book? Um, so the entire project took like seven years. Um, wow. I probably spent two to three just doing pure research. Um, okay. Part of that was there's an immense amount that's been written about Bruce Lee, but it's all been written pretty badly. And I don't mean partly just style, but mostly because it wasn't written by scholars. So you would have a book there's no footnotes. So they would just say things like, Bruce Lee went to New York City and learned praying mantis form with this and this master. Right. And then you try to figure out how that's possible because he was never in New York City. So anyway, the research took about two to three years. I also interviewed about 100 people, uh, friends and family of Bruce Lee. Uh, and then I slowly started writing. And as I was writing, then I'd have to go back and do more research as you found out, oh, I don't have any idea what happened at this point in his life. So right. a seven year project. Okay. Well, that's a good amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of, and you kind of answered one of my questions that I had is because I saw in an interview with you, you said there were two other biographies written by, um, written of Bruce. I was just wondering kind of how those differed from yours, but you kind of answered that question. And yeah. So, uh, what's interesting is there were two quickie biographies that came out right after he died. Um, and they did some interviews, but there was no source material. Um, okay. And then, you know, over time, there's probably like a dozen bad biographies of Bruce Lee. There's just not one okay. properly good one. Uh, and then there were a lot of people who knew Bruce Lee who wrote sort of their experiences with Bruce Lee. Uh, and then the, the last one that was written was about 25 years ago. And again, yeah, no, no footnotes, no no way to back up claims um, and a lot of sort of material that was incorrect in them. Okay. Um, and then another thing that stood out to me was I also 
you were saying it previously that one of the things that made Bruce's style so unique is because he was such a good dancer and he moved so fluidly. Right. I saw in an interview when I was doing a little bit more research with his daughter, Shannon, that he was actually a cha-cha champion at some point. Yeah. So, so that's one of the things people don't realize about Bruce Lee. Well, two things I think that are crucial to realize, which is one, his father was an actor and Bruce Lee was a child actor who started in his first film when he was six years old. I think that's crucial to understand how he became such a star because most action heroes like Chuck Norris were martial artists who try to learn how to act. And Bruce Lee was an actor who learned martial arts and then combined the two. And that's why he's right. so effective on screen. But also his style on screen is not the way he would actually fight in real life. It was, it was stylized in order to create a kind of effect on the audience. And it was very much influenced by the fact that he was a dancer um, and cha-cha. He did win a cha-cha championship in Hong Kong in 1958. Yeah. Now, I don't think Hong Kong was the center of cha-cha dancing. So right. I don't think that contest was that hard to win, okay. but, but uh, you know, he wasn't Olympic level, but he was, he was a very good dancer. And I think when you watch him on screen, you can see that kind of rhythm. That's, that's part of the beauty of martial arts choreography, which is very distinct from combat sports or street fighting. You're, you're taking the martial arts into a, in a different context. So okay. you mentioned that one of Bruce Lee's ideas was to adapt or adopt what's useful and discard what's useless. And that's kind of a yeah. quite a progressive, realistic idea for fight sports. And so in your mind, to what extent can we consider Bruce Lee a sort of um, a pioneer of what became mixed martial arts or of how we understand useful martial arts today? Because obviously his his on-screen fighting style and what he believed in in terms of fighting off-screen um, are quite different. Right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I uh, often joke that like if, if mixed martial arts, in mixed martial arts, if you're trying to find its heritage, uh, Bruce Lee's like John the Baptist and the Gracies are like Jesus, um, which is Bruce Lee was the first, he was pointing the way early on before anybody else, but he didn't obviously create mixed martial arts. And the style he came up with Jeet Kune Do, you can see some similarities, but it's not the style that we see today. Uh, and so I think he did two things that allowed mixed martial arts to happen. One, he created the explosion and popularity for martial arts in the West. And one of the examples I give is there was something like 50 martial arts studios in the U.S. before Enter the Dragon. And by the 90s, like 20 million Americans were studying martial arts. <clears throat> so you have to have a base of people who understand and appreciate and love martial arts to have a sport, right? If you don't, nobody plays rugby in America, so we don't have a rugby league. Um, nobody plays American football in, you know, Ghana. So they don't watch American football. You have to have kids do an activity before you can have a professional sport league that they will pay money to watch because they have an appreciation of it. So that's the first thing he did that's crucial in a kind of commercial sense. And then I, I think the reason why Dana White calls him the godfather is because he established that philosophical background, which is adapt what is useful, reject what is useless, make it specifically your own. And that spirit 
is what mixed martial arts took in, which is that kind of tremendous pragmatism. You know, he would say, I don't care if it kicks Korean or, or Japanese, if it works, it works. Right. right. And that's very much the kind of uh, mixed martial arts spirit, which is, uh, you know, can I choke a guy out with that technique? Well, I don't care who taught me it. Right. Um, and the traditional approach was my master's master's master. This is, this, this is 500 years old. And so we have to do it exactly as it was. Yeah. And that's, that's the kind of dividing line between the, the mixed martial arts world and the traditional kung, traditional MA world. And Bruce Lee was the, one of the breaks between those two. And he was really the guy who was the loudest about shouting, we have to just use what's pragmatic and useful and ignore what's all these, you know, what he called the classical mess. Yeah, and, and I mean, he, he seems to have ruffled some feathers at the time, talking yeah. about how classical martial arts, um, uh, some of it was unrealistic, the way the tournaments worked were, were unrealistic. And I just wonder when you look at a film like Enter the Dragon, yeah, how much influence did he have over the the fights and and the and the setup? Because I, I I noticed two things. The one is everyone's in a gear except him. He's like I'm yeah. I'm not like a subject to your to your ranking system, right? Um, and the other was um, Jared and I were talking about it in the week. He that opening fight scene, which is a sort of tournament MMA type fight. Yeah, they wear they're essentially wearing MMA gloves, and he yeah. actually finishes the fight with a submission on the ground. Yeah, it's not a it's not a submission that a, I think a high level jujitsu guy could could escape no. that submission. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean he's already thinking um, during his lifetime. It seems if he's got that influence in yeah. that film. He's thinking, look, a fight can go to the ground. Submissions can work. And right. like you said earlier, at the time, people thought of martial arts, they thought of striking. But was it him who was already recognizing that striking is only one part of this game? Yes. So I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because when I rewatched Enter the Dragon again after doing the MMA book, I hadn't seen it in like you know, 15 years. That first scene is so striking because that could be like George St. Pierre. They've got those little yeah. tight shorts yeah. and they've got the fingered gloves um, and he drops, I think it's a crucifix that he finishes Samuel Hung in. Uh, not a good one, as you point out, um, and not a move anybody would really want to use. But um, he did a lot and he, he, he does some arm twists, flips yeah. that are kind of hot keto. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I think what was interesting is he he recognized it was useful even though he personally didn't really like grappling. Um, and he, so he studied some judo, which was the, there was karate and judo were the only two martial arts in America basically at the time he came over. Uh, and so he met some judo guys, judo Jean LaBelle, who was Ronda Rousey's sort of spiritual influence and coach um, was one of his friends. They worked together on the green Hornet. And so he learned some what we call catch wrestling, um, but it's also partly jujitsu, that kind of old school American style wrestling, which involves chokes. Uh, and so he learned some of that stuff. He also learned some pro wrestling moves too that he could use in, in his films. So he knew wrestling mattered. He knew fights could go to the ground. He personally didn't really like grappling. He was a striker at heart. 
Um, but he knew he needed to know enough about grappling to deal with it. Uh, and I, and so he, you will see in various parts of his films, some grappling moves and enter the dragon certainly had that. And I think that movie, you know, you can't trace a direct line, but that scene looks so much like the UFC. Uh, you feel like some of the early people who were doing it must have had Enter the Dragon in their head when they were right. watching, when they were creating it. So it is his choreography. That yeah, the- oh, sorry. I, I didn't ask your specific question. That entire scene he wrote. And yeah. all, all the fight choreography in Enter the Dragon is his. Yeah, that is amazing. It's really like kind of um, uh, visionary. And, and I wonder, you know, when you think about how, how young he died, and how much he was willing to innovate, you know, if he'd lived another 10 years, he might've, uh, he might've thought more and more, I've, I've got to understand uh, this grappling world, but uh, you know, who knows? We can never know. Yeah. Who knows? But I think, I think, you know, Chuck Norris certainly did. He got, he became friends with the Gracies and he started learning more about that. And I'm quite certain that um, Bruce would have, because Bruce Lee would have been so famous, the Gracies would have, <laughs> would have like called him out. There's no way the Gracies wouldn't have called Bruce Lee out and it'd have pissed him off and he would have spent some more time. He knew basically what jujitsu was, not as advanced as the Gracies, but catch wrestling has a lot of similarities. And he studied some of that and he read all the books. Um, but I think the bigger thing that would have happened, and this is what happens with most martial artists, is jujitsu is just easier on the joints in a weird way than striking. Um, striking is a young man's game. It's all about speed and reflexes. Uh, and wrestling and grappling is something you can do at, at a high level at, at an older age. Uh, and one of the problems Bruce Lee had as a 32 was his back was injured and he was getting really, like, he wasn't sure how long he could continue doing these kind of crazy kung fu movies. So, yeah, I think he probably would got would have gotten into jiu-jitsu. And uh, Matthew... Obviously, Bruce Lee's focus seemed to be in the movies, but I mean, was there a side of him where he was competing? I saw some old footage of a tournament in Long Beach, I think it was. Yeah. So, I mean, did he actually spend a significant amount of time kind of in the competitive testing his skill or more just in the movies? Um, So he had, uh, what was interesting about Bruce Lee is that he was actually a real street fighter as a kid. He loved to actually scrap. He was one of those bar brawler type guys who took up the martial arts to get better at fighting. <laughs> like, he, wasn't, he wasn't trying to learn how to defend himself. He was, lear- he was learning how to beat people up better. Um, and so when he got to America at that time, karate had the point fighting. That was the main sort of competitive. And if you've seen any of the old point fighters, they're, you know, they're tough guys, um, but it's very restricted as far as rules are concerned. And so he never wanted to compete in those kind of point fighting tournaments because he felt the rules were so restrictive that it would disadvantage him to the point where he'd probably lose. And Bruce didn't want to lose. He was very competitive. And he certainly didn't want to lose because some ref called, a, you know, you have to pull your punch before you hit somebody. How do you know if it worked, right? Um, so he didn't compete in sports combat, but he had several challenge matches through his young adulthood. Um, so he actually did fight guys for real in like, you know, his studio, um, right. and, and to train, he would go and he would do kind of very hard sparring for the time. Um, but he wasn't a combat sports guy. And, and did he not, I'm just, it's, I, it's been a while since I read the book, but did he not have a, um, 
an, an amateur boxing uh, competition early on in his life? He did. So he, when he was like 16 or 17. So it was a high school. It was almost a bit of a lark. Um, and he did, uh, there was like, it was like a tournament with three guys in his weight class and he got a bot, he got a buy and then fought the, fought the kid. Um, and it was about what you would expect if you watch sort of high schoolers try to box. (laughs) Um, and he did okay with it. And, but I think he also found that experience frustrating because, um, if you know anything about Wing Chun, they're really into the kind of punch that they turn their wrist into. Um, because they use these short, sharp punches instead of the, they don't turn their body into it. It's all right. centered. And so a lot of the force they try to get from their knuckles. And so having your your hands put into gloves takes away that entire extra little bit of force you get with Wing Chun. You know, it's one of the, the lines I like, which is, you know, um, styles make fights, but rules make styles. And every time you change a rule in a combat sport, people's style has to change because suddenly something this becomes more effective than that. And, you know, you put gloves on and suddenly you can't do short wing chung punches because you need more power. You need to turn your body into it. And so at any rate, um, I think he did do, he did, he had one boxing match. That was his only combat sport experience. Uh, and then he had some challenge matches. And then when he got famous, Everyone wanted to fight him. And so on the sets, the stuntman would come up and say, hey, I don't think you're that good. And so he kicked some stuntman's ass. So I actually saw, um, I think it was an interview with his daughter where she kept on saying he would be challenged. They would call him like the paper tiger or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, they were uh, the paper tiger or they would call him a a movie star martial artist. That he was, he was, he was an actor who did a little martial arts, not the real thing. Must have um, pissed him off. Yeah, they pissed him off and he would like, he would like, all right, let's go over here. Um, yeah. And the truth was, as a martial artist, he was one of, you know, in America, he's probably one of the top four or five guys in America and in the world, who knows? But, you know, he was like an elite top 1% martial artist. Um, and he was a great actor, or a good actor and a, and a great movie star. Um, but those stuntmen were like, you know, mediocre right so it was it would be like you know uh who's like the third best player on a mediocre nba team and you're like i don't think your basketball is any good you just don't know the difference in level and so bruce lee was an elite elite martial artist he wasn't invincible but you know compared to the stuntman who challenged him he just wiped the floor with those guys. Yeah. yeah right and um sorry jess no no go ahead um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know about sort of spoilers in the book, but of course the book is uh, maybe controversial for some people because it does take an honest look at Bruce Lee as a, as, as in an amazing way, but also as a flawed person, um, right. uh, not faithful to his wife, dying in strange circumstances, um, Smoking quite a bit of weed. Not that I'm suggesting that that's a flaw, but some people would. Sure. <laughs> that's um, a plus. <laughs> but it's still, some people wouldn't see it that way. <laughs> I got Marley in the background. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, a very honest look and a, and a very, you know, like you were saying, some of the other books on Bruce Lee are not, are not uh, well, re- well researched. You can't see where, where the sources are. Your book is uh, thoroughly sort of sourced. Um, so 
you've made those cases and you've made them really well. Um, I can imagine there's been, you know, some, some people don't want to hear anything bad about the idols. Uh, others might say, well, I'm kind of relieved that this person is, is human and can, can, can err, you know? Yeah. I th- you know, it was one of the interesting struggles in writing about it because I hadn't uh, written a biography before and I certainly hadn't written about someone who is almost like a court. Um, he's like the patron saint of martial arts. And so a lot of us got into martial arts because of him and our lives got better. And so that there's a transference of affection to Bruce Lee. Um, and over the years, his image has become almost like saintly. So, you know, people are like, he could destroy. I, 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 one of my lines is that I was on a forum and actual adults were debating whether Bruce Lee could beat the Hulk in a fight. And, and you're like, well, you know, one's fictional, right? Um, and two, he would get killed. So I mean, but the, the point is, Bruce Lee has become almost a comic book hero. Um, and so when you're trying to like write about the actual details of somebody who's that elevated, no matter what you say, somebody's going to feel slighted. Um, and at a certain point I just had to not worry about it and just write what I, you know, what the evidence pointed at. Um, and he had some minor, he had flaws. Certainly his biggest flaw was just his ego and temper. Um, but he, he was unfaithful to his wife. What's interesting is he didn't think that was a flaw. He was like, I love my wife. And I, sometimes I go out and have fun. He like, we think that's a flaw. And we're, and one of the things you realize is oftentimes you project your morality onto a person who didn't have the same point of view. And the same thing with smoking pot. He was like, he was a hyperactive person and smoking pot really chilled him out and calmed him down. Um, But his image has become so like, Shaolin Temple monk, pure, pure body, only training. Um, and he wasn't like that. Sometimes he drank, he smoked a fair amount of weed, uh, and uh, he partied. Uh, and the truth is, if you know martial artists, a lot of them do the same. Like, like <laughs> martial artists often are the biggest like partiers you can meet, especially yeah. the fighter guys. Like when they're out of training, they go wild. So this image of the, the, the monk on a mountaintop is fictional. Uh, and that's one of the things I had to deconstruct. And certainly, you know, that's not what his family, that's not the image pr- promoted by the Bruce Lee estate. Um, mm-hmm. And so I knew I was treading in some rough waters there. Yeah. And just one last question for me, Matthew. Obviously, as we've said, Bruce Lee is such a legend. Dana White refers to him as the godfather of, of mixed martial arts. Are there still some of his students, people teaching his style, his philosophies, maybe some martial arts gyms that are dedicated to his style and his philosophy still? Yeah, so there are. There are I, you know, after I wrote the book, I ended up meeting even more Chi Kune Do guys than I did beforehand. Um, I, you know, what's interesting is Bruce Lee created the style of Jeet Kune Do, but he didn't want it to be thought of as a style because his idea was in the same way every writer or painter is supposed to have their own unique voice. He thought every martial artist should have their own unique style. Um, Like if you, and I, it's very interesting. Like if you were trying to be a painter and you said, I paint exactly the way my masters had for 500 years, people be like, well, I'm not going to buy your painting. <laughs> Why don't you paint like you want to paint? 
Um, But martial artists are not artists in that sense. They were supposed to do like their masters. So yeah, I think um, uh, Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do couldn't totally survive because he couldn't create a coherent system. Um, But there are a few people who train Jeet Kune Do the way that learned from his students. So it's a, but it's a very minor niche in the martial arts world compared to say Taekwondo or karate. Right. Awesome. Well, uh, we really appreciate your time. It was a fascinating conversation. Highly recommend the book, Bruce Lee, a life. And uh, yeah, thanks again for your time. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Matthew. That was really great. A great discussion. Uh, loved having you on and uh, yeah, Bruce Lee, a life is available. Uh, you can get it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, even under lockdown at uh, Take A Lot. And yeah, thanks for uh, spending the time with us today and writing such a comprehensive book. It was definitely long overdue for people interested in Bruce Lee, martial arts, combat sports, the origins of MMA, and uh, really great stuff. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. It was a fun conversation. I hope I hope everybody enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Matthew. Take care. All right, take care, guys.